This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Happy Monday and welcome back to the WOMED, my friends. This episode was recorded back in September shortly after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the tragic loss of American lives. Jackie and I sit down with the founder of a beautiful organization called Relief Without Borders that aids refugees. This is a very special episode, and Jackie and I were honored to be in Cinzella's presence and listen to her passion for helping people and to paint a new picture of Afghanistan. Grateful to share this episode Links will be available in the show notes and at the end of the episode on how to get involved. Without further ado, we give you Sinzella Atmar on the WOMED. Today on the WOMED, we have a very, very special guest. Her name is Sinzella Atmar. I met Sinzella through work. And when did you come over here? From Afghanistan? So I moved to America in 1997. Okay. So this is pre 9 11. Mm-hmm. Okay. I guess what were kind of the circumstances of your family traveling here? So my family at the time, we were eight members and we were living pretty comfortably pre Mujahideen takeover of Kabul. So we were living, you know, middle class. All we knew was what we knew, you know, of our country. And my parents had to make the really difficult decision to leave their neighborhood when the two tribes were fighting each other in Kabul and the, it became a, a rocket war. So houses were being taken out and my mom made the courageous decision to take her kids and husband and take advantage of a ceasefire something that a lot of people in the neighborhood, you know, heard was coming. It was a 72-hour ceasefire, and my family had to make a very quick decision to take a few bags and start to travel east um, and try to get out of where the fights were happening. So that's where our journey started and our, you know, strategy of trying to avoid war. And when we did that, we didn't think we were leaving the country. We thought we would just go wait in a different city let it settle down and return to our home. We didn't realize that that was essentially our goodbye to our country. So that was in 1994. I was only a few years old. So I don't have a personal memory of that journey leaving, Um, but my family did end up having to reside in a UN camp from 94 to 96. So that camp is, you know, kind of where we had a lot of you know, traumatic memories and our family had to figure out how to survive in that. Yeah. You talked about like your family won this lottery. Was that kind of like the only opportunity for your family to leave? Yeah. So at the time we have to, you know, we're going back to the nineties, late nineties. 
And we're, you know, being told that we can't go to certain cities because like, and I feel like now, you know, America is starting to understand how that takeover could be in the 90s because we're seeing these cities being taken over. So my family's plan was to leave Kabul, go to a different city where we had relatives. But then the patrol of the village said, no, we can't take any more people. You have to go to the UN camps at the border. So we were told to go to these camps and it was almost like a, a chaotic where where are we supposed to go? Where's the safest place? Is this the safest place? Now we're under these like UN, you know, tents and we're, you know, going through the food programs and we didn't have the technology that we even have today where these refugees at least have, you know, WhatsApp and they're messaging their, you know, Western allies and getting assistance on paperwork. There weren't programs for like the SIV, you know, priority one for interpreters, priority two. There were all these programs that were able to get us out. There was this one in a million chance of being a recipient of a visa lottery, something that people will apply for for 10 years and never see the product of. Their family will never be chosen. And so we were in this camp. We didn't have a physical address where, you know, we don't even have, you know, a, a home at this point. And they had these makeshift English classes and makeshift, you know, programs under the UN, one being having the students that were about teenage years apply for their family's uh, visa lottery opportunity. So little did we know my oldest brother applied our family as one of the visa lottery recipients. And so we didn't know about it. And when we heard the news, we almost thought it was like spam mail. We were like, who is trying wow. to get us to transfer flight money, you know, into this account? We thought it was a scam. And we're like, no, you know, this is not real. Then we called our family in actually Nashville in America. And we asked them and they said, no, 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 this is the Clinton administration. And they were doing the U.S. visa lottery program. And so, no, this is real. So we had to come up with the money to fly here. And out of nowhere, our family's uprooting you know, out of a camp where we had to leave my, you know, brother who was killed and we had to leave, you know, that behind and go, all right, now we're going, coming to America. What is this life? And we're, you know, now 20 years later, we're seeing so many people experience the exact same story, but not in a red carpet way, more in a, hey, you're running out of your country now now you can breathe. Now you're on the plane to come to America. So it's a little different, but I definitely can relate to what's happening right now. Oh, goodness. Your story is so impactful and beautiful. And without making you feel uncomfortable, you know, you spent three years about in a refugee camp in very, very formative years in a young, at a young age. Can you shed a little bit more light into what that looked like? To give you guys a little bit of insight of what a lifestyle can look like in a camp, they have an X amount of resources that they can supply the the families with. And it's, you know, if it's done, it's done. So there'd be days where my mom would be praying because she didn't have food for us. And all she had was like a little piece of bread for eight family members. And that, I feel like we were the fortunate ones to even be in a circumstance where we at least had the UN camp system that had some order. Now, you know, seeing the circumstance that we see today, there is no order. You know, the UN hasn't even spoken on what's happening 
in Afghanistan yet. Doctors Without Borders is on the ground. There are some organizations still operating because we see that the the new you know government ordinance is trying to proclaim that like you know we we're not going to mess with these people, but we have seen you know that that's not the case. So the lifestyle in a camp is what you think it would be. It is there is no safety. You know you don't have law and order. And so we, you know, being six kids to my parents, we would like run around the tent and like you see it in footage now on social media, you get to like see it firsthand what lifestyle is like in a camp. I I was there, I lived it, I don't have a memory of it, but I, I feel like when I see what we're witnessing today, it's almost shocking to me that I was one of those kids. It's, uh, it's hard to process that, oh, I lived like that for a little season of my childhood. And there is guilt behind that. There's shame that I got out and there's, you know, kids that are being killed. I feel sad that my brother was one of the ones that were killed, but I wasn't. Um, so you you feel guilty, like what what if we, you know, decided not to go to that camp? What Would I still have him here and all those, you know, you start to question a lot of things, but you're also at the same time so grateful so it's this weird, complex emotion where you're mourning, but then you're so grateful that you have your freedom here in a, in a way. I guess what kind of resources were available to you as, as a young girl, like in, in those camps and like women in those camps? Was there any, you were saying like makeshift, like English classes and stuff like that, but like, was there anything starting there to kind of teach you anything like empower you in any way it's hard because in a camp their first priority is just to give you your human essentials so their first priority is all right these people need food water shelter and then it's they completely you know they have to neglect those other things like education after a few years, this camp ends up being people's homes because their home was um, rocketed. Their home was lost in war. And so their only option is to stay in a tent. And so they end up residing there for long enough that they find the need to make these makeshift classrooms. And then it's almost like a neighborhood. So the camp that I lived in, when I was younger, it's still there. It's on the border of Peshawar in the, you know, the famous photo of the Avian girl on the, you know, National Geographics is the same camp that I was in. So she, you know, resided there for probably decades. And then that is, you know, that's the reality of a lot of kids. I'm just fortunate enough that I was in and out and that my parents were able to kind of upgrade to the makeshift, what we say, makeshift for apartment, pretty much a container box. So... That was our story. But. And I've heard you speak about your parents a few times now, and especially your mom. Can you talk a little bit more about your mom's experience and how that relates to you and what it was like still now having her as a role model in your life and even speak a little bit more about what she was doing at the time? My mom is so different than what you would consider, you know, a 
in Afghanistan, women are supposed to be quiet. There's like a village association to like how women should be, you know, respectful. And my mom already broke all those barriers for me. So it allows me to kind of follow in her footsteps. And every um, dream I have, every goal I have was actually seeded from hers. And so I almost feel like I'm like completing her, you know, dreams. My mom is the type of person and I try to be even more like her. She's very fearless and I'm, I'm coming into that. Um, I think it'll come with time, but you know, she's a, a bad A, I say. Um, and <laughs> um, in Afghanistan, uh, how she operates is she befriends everybody and she, you know, helps other women that are suppressed and she finds out if someone's, you know, husband's abusing them and she tries to get them out and she, you know, she really is hands on. And I always admire that about my mom. And to this day, you know, she spent 11 years working with the U.S. military and the stories I could, you know, this podcast would turn into a three hour podcast if I told you all the stories. <laughs> but she played, you know, Mother Teresa for the Marines and the all the branches, you know, the the U.S. branches would rely on their interpreter to communicate. And so their interpreter was such a, an important element to their work. And my mom being like a mother Teresa energy, she really helped these guys. Like they weren't, they weren't technically supposed to go into villages and like buy potatoes and stuff. But my mom would like go into the village and say, all right, let me get you guys some better food. And then she would start cooking on an open fire for these, you know, these soldiers who missed their moms, missed their, you know, spouses and had a loving, you know, woman energy around her. So I really look up to my mom. That's so awesome and just so different than what, you know, the media portrays. Women are so, you know, suppressed and downtrodden over there and they don't have access to education and stuff like that. And it just, I'm just wondering if your mom faced any persecution really for, you know, having a job like working for the U.S. military specifically. Definitely. There are, you know, open-mindedness and then there's closed-mindedness in any culture. There are um, people in, you know, Afghanistan that are very westernized and open-minded and there's people who, you know, all they know is one suppressed way. And so my mom, you know, doing things differently had judgment from all angles internally in the family, you know, externally, um, how she dealt with you know, being the breadwinner, you know, that was hard, you know, and in, in our family, but my mom just powered through. And I think that that's what I love to w witness with her is just the stories of just how much empathy she has for everybody. And, and it doesn't matter, you know, what ethnicity they are, who they are, what religion they are. She just shows empathy to everybody. And she just has so many miraculous stories in her time working with the U.S. military that just make me, you know, I I start tearing up because it's just crazy to think that, like, my mom did that, you know. She, yeah. She's my mom, and that's so cool in my head. I'm like, <laughs> wow, she's so, she's so awesome. <laughs> she's a bad A. Yeah, bad A. <laughs> Obviously, I mean, we're now, you know, in a post 9-11 world, racism, especially this year, has become you know, even more rampant. I mean, not more, I shouldn't say more rampant because it's always been there, but
but we're going to have so many refugees coming to America now after, you know, the attacks and stuff in Afghanistan and Taliban taking over. And post 9-11, there was a disgusting amount of hatred, right? What can we do just to try and change like the narrative, be better advocates, better like allies, so that the refugees coming feel safe. I think it's important to know that these refugees that are coming to America have such virgin eyes of what America is. It's the, you know, the I remember as a kid, we used to always think America is like the golden, the the dream, you know? And so these people that are coming here, they're so thankful to be here. And racism is everywhere. So we have to counter that with grace. And when we meet people, they always say, if you put two people in a room, I did a campaign uh, with Catholic Relief Service, and it was called Be Unafraid. And the whole campaign was centered around interviewing a refugee and then the antagonist. But when we would put them in a room together, the racism was eliminated because they saw that that person's a human and they they would get like a glimpse of their story and realize, wow, this woman wrapped her kids on her back through Sudan and that's her like that's her story of like coming here and like they're like, wow, why am I so hard on them for you know, relocating? And America, it's not like we have a, we can't handle the refugees coming in. We are one of the countries that can. And so I feel like, especially with the region where it's such an ally that for every 100,000 soldiers, theirs was tens of thousands of interpreters. So those interpreters saved so many lives. I have endless, you know, I have a binder just on my mother of Thank you so much for saving X amount of lives on this project. Thank you so much for saving a thousand lives because you interpreted this. So the interpreters, the people that are coming here, they're being vetted. They, you know, there was that one plane that they're probably going to vet more. That was the, the chaos plane. But the other ones, they're going through tedious paperwork to prove that they worked with the U.S. So these people that are coming here, They've, they've been allies of the U.S. They worked alongside us. They're coming here. They have experience. They're interpreters, you know, interpreters and their families, um, NGO uh, contacts. They're all coming here, and they, they're so thankful to have a place that is safe. And I think it's our job as Americans in the melting pot to just, you know, it's not to, like, do everything for everybody, but it's to utilize your community and your your neighborhood and get creative on how to help them. When I was a new refugee in America, a family drove their car over to our house and they're like, hey, we just we just feel led to give you our car. And we were like, what is this? You know, uh, we, had, we were riding and bi- like my parents had bicycles and we were just new to America and we didn't know anything. My my dad started working at McDonald's. My mom started working, you know, at the local grocery store. Like we started from nothing. But now if you see like how much and how much hard work just my family has done, that's what's going to be replicated with these families. And I just hope that the same kindness that was shown to my family is shown to everyone who's coming here and that the neighborhoods welcome them and show them the resources that we have and, you know, the opportunities that we have because 
they're they're eager to you know ingrain into our community so obviously things have been all over the news all over the media recently with what is happening in afghanistan and i can only imagine having already lived it once how seeing these images and this messaging and maybe a narrative pushed in the media how that could be really traumatic for someone to watch how have you been doing overall and just what are your thoughts kind of seeing everything go down and are you able to take space for yourself i should right um <laughs> i need to but it, it's hard to sit still when you know things are happening so fast you see a uh, 20 years of work collapse in three days and we all like we don't have time to mourn it we're just in survival mode of trying to help the people that need help so i actually was you know in Miami when all this happened and I was locking myself in my hotel room and just doing interviews and like, you know, making sure that we were the voice of these people. We posted one infographic and we're so shocked of like the, what seemed like the community needed to just kind of understand the non-political and non, you know, unbiased, but yeah, unbiased <laughs> opinion of what's going on. Like here, here's what's going on this is like the simple way to help, like help them with their paperwork. Let's help them with knowing their options. Like if they qualify because they were an ally, let's at least get them their paperwork. And so we, we rushed to do that. And I felt like I had to explain, you know, to local news outlets and just like explain the circumstance that these are people who are allies. And these are people who really like need our help, who were promised our help. And so they're relying on that, they're not safe to stay there. The The data, unfortunately, was released of who these people are, where their addresses are, because in the peace talks that were had, the data was shared and even, you know, Biden admitted to this. So unfortunately, there's like a roster of like, it's a death roster. And so that we are fighting the clock to try to get these people help. And now where we're at, it's a, it's almost like everyone's in shock and quiet because the, you know, the airport closed and now like everyone is scared to go outside. Everyone like the aid uh, relief campaigns that I'm, you know, executing, I have to make sure that I execute a little calmly, you know, not to like stir the pot and, and like, so, draw too much attention yeah, and like phase it out, you know? Um, so we're, we're trying to read the room, but we also don't trust this new authority nobody does and i think we're ignorant to think that they're suddenly you know have kindness in their hearts i just i have a hard time believing that understandably so can you i mean if you're comfortable can you give any insight into what life is like over there and or like will be like under Taliban rule or i think you know nobody knows for sure what where their headspace is at beyond this contradicting information that they're giving where they say we're going to allow women to have rights but under this law so that being said they're pretty much like a prime example would be we're going to let women work in you know these outlets but you have to fully be covered wear gloves and you can't be in the same room as men so if you're saying that, then where are you going to put them? So then by default, they can't do it. So they're saying, hey, come, come work with us. We'll allow it. 
but pretty much go in the closet. And so there, there isn't rights. And so I feel like it's a, it's all for show. Like you have to ask yourself, like, why is the one reporter blonde and blue that's, you know, that's hanging out with them on CNN and why are they so nice to her? And so you have to just like have logical sense and go, all right, it's, it's all for show. So they're trying to have some, you know, worldwide, you know, respect where other countries want to start doing business with them. But no one's going to respect people that are beheading someone because they had a certain job. It'd be like, you know, the KKK breaking out in the U.S. And then saying, oh, if you don't believe what we believe, we're going to, you know, hang you. So it is that extreme. And I think the one thing I press is like, don't become desensitized to like what's happening because we, we as humans can only take so much trauma and then we just become kind of numb. And I think it's like, we just don't need to let the voices go mute and like normalize women being hung because that's just madness, you know? So. Thank you so much for opening up and, and you sharing your story. It's, it's a really very valuable story. And I just have that most respect and appreciation for you and, and what you're trying to do. We started a nonprofit called Relief Without Borders. And I just, I want to give you like some space just to kind of speak into how that came about. First of all, thank you for allowing me to speak, you know, and use my voice and my story on this podcast. I did start Relief Without Borders in 2017. You know, we weren't expecting what is happening now to unfold. I started it to give a platform to show common humanity. So we started it by sharing stories from the ground in these developing regions, especially Afghanistan, because I'm from there. I, you know, have the most um, doors to open there and most projects going on there, but we work in several Asian countries. So with Afghanistan specifically, I wanted to show that there was more than war there. And when we did that, people wanted to aid all these families and aid the people that we were you know, bringing their stories to light. And so we have a aid relief element to Relief Without Borders. So what we do is we do campaigns from A to Z and we have the people involved. We have a lot of young adults who, you know, volunteer right now. We have an influx of volunteers. We had about 1,200 sign up in the last week. And so we're trying to manage the, the you know, people who want to help, which is a great problem to have. And with Relief Without Borders, what we do is we showcase the need, we um, spell it out and how to help, and then we execute and document. And so we allow people to be a part of it. I myself am also a volunteer with Relief Without Borders. We're, we're fully volunteer, and then we also have a few consultants, but we, we're not, you know, staffed. And so we do that intentionally, so it allows most of, you know, everything we fundraise to go overseas. And that being said, right now with what's going on, we have two ways people can get involved. People can donate online and they can actually aid the groundwork that we're slowly, you know, executing with the bank limitations. And then people can help on the U.S. side where we've started. We're part of, you know, Amazon Smile and that charity list of, you know, items we need to, you know, send out to the refugees now relocating to the U.S. So there's, you know, basic um, 
uh, bathroom items. There's stuff on there that just everybody would will need as a refugee. And so you can just, while you're shopping on Amazon, add, you know, some toothbrushes, some toothpaste, and then check out in it. It just goes straight to the storage unit. And so once they come, we'll ship them out to all those families. And it just allows people to, you know, who don't have time, but want to help, you know, gives them those avenues. But we, we really try to keep the voices live from the ground. And you'll see this coming week, our, you know, post banks opening our aid distribution. So you'll be able to witness it with us. Well, Amazon's definitely an easy way that we can all, unfortunately, we are all probably on that a little bit too much, but that is a very easy, actionable way that anyone listening that we can all help out in that way. I know Relief Without Borders also uses portraits to help this storytelling, and I would love to know more about how that started and why you find so much value in using these portraits as a medium to share. So with humanitarian work, I saw, I had a hard time photographing people and kids and then not aiding that specific kid. So we actually came up with a concept called Portrait for Change. And what that is, and in that session, we pay the subject, we pay the photographer, and it's like a package. And then we ask the subject, what are you going to spend this on? And in that natural exchange, they're so happy that you cared enough to give them that. There's like this really organic exchange versus just photographing, you know, poverty. So we like to do it in that model and then, you know, capture our um, campaigns because it kind of, to me, it felt weird and wrong to photograph kids in poverty and then not right in that exchange, give them you know, something. And so we do that. And then what I've noticed is common humanity, people connect with eyes, people connect, like you can tell a story, but then you can show the kid or you can show the family. And like racism is eliminated. All these like things that we're taught and, you know, unfortunate, like bad things we're taught are just erased when you see like a man clinging onto a like airplane wing any opinion goes out the window because if you have two cents, you go, wow, is it that bad that you're going to hang on to a plane when you know you're going to fall off? Because like, there's, your chances are zero. So you're, you know, dozens of people are willing to do that. Like, wow, the ground is not safe. And I think that we are in, you know, 2021, we have access to social media. We have access to all these resources. News is not, you know, something I say ignore, but I say like compare it to what you see from, you know, very unbiased journalists or people on the ground who are just like taking imagery because I I don't believe that all these people are just photoshopping this stuff. Like it's real, it's on the ground and you just got to compare it and really like utilize the fact that this crisis is happening in a time with technology versus in the 90s my story was not on instagram nobody got to see the fact that you know the conditions of the camp they only now see it so i think it's important yeah for sure and it definitely just speaking about like the different time like things have changed so much so much more information is available now and you are getting to see you know, these events unfold in real time. And 
it's almost more personal. Like I feel like it's hitting a lot more people. Like those, no one can get those images out of their head. I mean, like, yeah, I can't imagine, you know, being someone that has like lived there, has family members there. Does it reach a point ever where it's, you're like, almost like stop sharing those images? Like, Mm. I think my fear with content would be that it desensitizes people. But I think that there's still power in it. Like the child that was handed off to the U.S. soldier, that photo has now, in a sense, gone viral to where, you know, news now is that all these diaper companies are donating to all the refugees coming in. So that that wouldn't have happened if that, you know, unfortunately that baby was not, you know, handed off. And it's, I I never want to, I think it's like a personal battle of saying, hey, I'm not going to like numb out. If it's too much for you, if you're seeing too much, take a break. Like I, I battle like watching too much and then just crying. So then I'm like, okay, I'm a depressed human who can't even operate. So I have to stop myself. And there's like a balance of trying to help, but making sure you're like in a place to help. So it can become too much, but it's that, that's like an internal, what is your gauge? Where's your, you know, tolerance, right? We're living in a world where if you're constantly on social media, TikTok, Twitter, seeing the news, seeing these images, I think, you know, anyone and everyone can get desensitized if you're continuing to see the same images. But the point you made is so important that these are images as painful as they are. They're images that we need to see and they're images that brings the humanity back into people. And ultimately, I think really ties back with the work that you're doing with Relief Without Borders and making these stories more personal so it is harder to look away. Right. With Relief Without Borders, I never wanted to share imagery that was so devastating, even though devastation's, you know, everywhere. We see it all around the world. I didn't want to, you know, push people away by showing only that. Like, we try to show kids laughing. We're like, hey, we're also, you know, just showing their story and letting people, like, see life in those regions. You know, let's not write off a country and say, all right, well, eh, it's a waste of time. Let's not worry about it. Because if it was our land and if it was in, you know, if this was happening to in our backyard, we would then care. And I, it, it's unfortunate that sometimes we only care if it is in our backyard because we, people don't pick where they're born. People don't pick their circumstance. And as humans, I do think it's our responsibility to give a crap about other humans. Because we have that emotional capacity that, you know, other mammals and like other, you know, that sometimes they don't have. And that's where we really have to, you know, check ourselves and make sure we're doing our part. I would love if you could take us back to 2017, because starting a nonprofit is no easy task. What was the driving force when you just were sitting down and saying, hey, this is something that I, I need to do? So Relief Without Borders became a thing because to be honest I you know being in the south I was the only Middle Eastern girl in elementary school I was the only Middle Eastern in my community I was raised and almost laughed about the you know I like added to the laugh of like people making racist jokes I killed it with just laughing it off thought it would stop 
in high school, thought I would stop in college, thought I would stop in corporate America. I spent five years in corporate. I did um, digital forensics for law firms. And when I was there, I was like, wow, it just doesn't go away. It didn't stop in corporate America. So I think I used the Instagram that I started called People of Afghanistan as a way to like cope. And like when people would talk about Afghanistan, they'd be like, oh, you're from Afghanistan. That's that must be hard. They would like make comments or like, is your uncle Osama? And like, ha ha ha. And I'm like, ha ha. Uh, oh, about here I started this Instagram. Like, go look at it. It was almost like a way to for me to like off off put that conversation. Like, oh yeah, I have a, you know, this. But then the reason Relief Without Borders became a nonprofit is because people found POA, people of Afghanistan, and then they wanted to aid those kids. And then I realized, oh no, I'm like a barrier. <laughs> you know, I'm almost like the reason, you know, Susan in Texas <laughs> can't give to, you know, Feroza in Afghanistan. And like, we get messages like, I want to give to this one little girl we posted. She has like these beautiful eyes. She was like one of the first girls we posted. Feroza had like maybe 40 American families wanting her. And so I was almost like, I am the reason that Feroza can't get aid because I'm the connector. So then I sat with um, Neil and Harwell Law Firm here in Nashville. And, you know, we had the 501c3 set up. And I've made sure to keep Relief Without Borders very volunteer, you know, structure and allow people that are like college interns. And, you know, now we have Vanderbilt planning an event with us here in a few weeks. And then we have Georgetown, you know, doing an event with us in October. And like that community really gets involved because they realize like it is a community effort and with Relief Without Borders I mean sure I signed the paper but I it's not me it's this huge community of volunteers it's and that's with anything successful is like you can't do anything alone so I'm so thankful that so many people care and I just you know hope that people continue to care and apply their skill sets and giving back I think so many people forget because, I mean, obviously they don't live there, but like there's so many beautiful parts to Afghanistan. A family dynamic is very similar throughout the the world. Like fathers and mothers love their kids, you know, like they will like that maternal instinct, you know, like that's universal. And people laugh everywhere. People cry everywhere, you know, and I think that's really neat that you, you chose to try and show it, you know, change that narrative. One of the things that we were talking about earlier before we started the podcast was like the different ways that, you know, people can help. And when you think about someone immigrating to uh, America, like you need lawyers, you need um, access to healthcare, you need access to like how to find an apartment or like home or a place to live. So, I mean, those are just some of the ways you can, you can donate like your skills. Oh yeah. Some, you know, I used to think I'm not like rich enough to give to a charity and we forget that like little, little donations, um, in America, what it would take to help somebody is so different than what it would take to help somebody in these developing countries. You know, money is different. Currencies are different. So a normal middle-class family in Afghanistan's monthly income is $400. So you can completely, you know, do a 180 for somebody with, 
you know, 50 bucks. You could supply their food for a week. Um, so money does translate different in different countries. So it's important to understand that like your little donation does translate with aid relief. And so that being said, if people want to help or they feel inclined to help, maybe they have some sort of connection. A lot of people have this like, you know, unknowing bond to the Middle East. They're infatuated with like the history because it has this like BC element to it. And they just like fall in love with the culture. They see the food or they have a connection. Maybe their favorite restaurants, like an Iranian restaurant and they like know the owner, you know? So there, we, we all have a connection to certain regions for, for whatever that is. That being said, like we were talking before the podcast, I, I just think it's important to be creative in how you give back. People sometimes think, oh, well, I don't, I don't know how to, you know, I'm not in Nashville. I can't help relief that borders or I'm not in that realm. I don't know how to give back. I'm so busy. I'm in school. Sometimes it's not even like you specifically giving up your time, you specifically giving up your skill or monetary. Sometimes it's making a connection. It's like thinking like, Person A should meet person B because they could work well together. And it's like, how long does that take? Like you could, you know, be walking to your car and send an email. So it doesn't take that long to like think about like, oh, I think that those people should meet because I bet they could impact each other's missions. Or I'm so busy with work, but I'm going to, you know, I always do this like wine night with my friends. I'm going to turn it into like a charity element. I'm going to ask my girlfriends. Like, let's have a, you know, wine and cheese bachelor party or anything. And like, let's give back there. You can get so creative or if you have like a side hustle and you want to, you know, partner with a charity, every charity is able to give, you know, tax benefits to, you know, your business. So you have, you know, too much product or your products expiring. You can help a charity by donating those things. So there's really like, I could go on and on about ways to give back and like, a creative way. And that's what I try to push people to do. I love some of those ideas. <laughs> I think uh, even my wheels are turning about um, the different creative ways you can get involved, especially, you know, in today's day and age, social media makes it so easy. If you don't even have the time, the energy to do any of those incredible ideas, the easiest thing you can do is follow an account, share a post, you don't know who's going to see that post. Oh, right? yeah. And you guys have had some pretty big reposts recently. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was so shocked. We all love the show Friends, you know, and I was so shocked last Could week. Could it be any more awesome? <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow. Um, so last week we posted on Instagram and we had uh, Simone Biles repost it. And then we had Courtney Cox repost it. And like my jaw dropped like, wow, she cares. And like, I watched her story right before she reposted it and she's getting her hair and makeup done. And she was like taking a silly video of it. And I'm like, she's sitting in that chair, you know, getting her hair done. And she's like on Instagram and she just thought, click, click, repost. And like 10 million plus people saw it because of her. And because of that one second. And now you have 1,200 volunteers yeah, flooding your email. Exactly. And so everyone be patient with me on that part. But we are. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're, and we're we may not there. all have the same following as Courtney Cox. Yeah. But, <laughs> right. But any, you know, every time you share a post, it has the opportunity to catch someone else's oh, eye. Oh, yeah. For sure. And it's sometimes it's not, like I said, it's not us or it's like whatever industry you're in, if you're in music or if you're in restaurant, like there is a way. And you just have to get creative. 
the good thing about America is like every charity, any nonprofit you want to get involved in, there is, you know, that tax benefit. So I always tell people like, you know, it's a win-win, you know, if you have a business and you want to give back, it's also a win-win. So good. good Are you thinking about right? I have a lot of (laughs) ideas, but we'll save that maybe for after the pod. We we don't want to bore everybody, but I'm thinking we have to, I think we just made a connection here with some like good shirt or something to, um, to support because honestly, just such an incredible mission and it's backed by I mean, an incredible story. Thank you. And you so guys much. are not here with us, but you are absolutely, I mean, just such a presence. Mm. Oh, Stunning yeah. Stunning and just mm-hmm. such a presence. So we are so happy that you came on to share your story. I'm sure so many listeners and so many people are going to benefit from your perspective. And it's such a unique and just beautiful story to share. I appreciate you both so much. Thank you so much. I mean, this opportunity, you know, to to speak like we said, like, use our voices. We just have to talk and keep keep these stories alive. So I really appreciate you allowing me to do that today. Oh, God, of course. Sinzel, where can people find you? Like, if they want to get involved, if they want to make donations or, like, you know, follow along yes. with Relief Without Borders. We stay pretty active on social media. So you'll find Relief Without Borders there. It's all spelled out. I don't think I have any typos in it. Um, no. You search us, I'm sure, you know, it'll pop up. But if you need any help, I'm sure um, Danielle follows it and you follow it. Yes. So we will also be sharing on our own there we go. stories and Instagram and put it in the show notes as well for yes. people to find you Perfect. and Relief Without Borders. Thank you, guys. You're so welcome. What's like the greatest moment you've had in this last week? Ooh, good question. There's been, there hasn't been like one specific, I mean, yes, those, the reactions were awesome. And like that day was amazing. All the support. I think what, what blew my mind is it's not like one quality donor. It's not one quality supporter. It was quantity of quantity of people caring. And it, it just like, was this, I was mourning. I was feeling all these emotions. I was thinking like very sad, probably dark things. And just seeing like my phone just go buzz, 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 just to me was so beautiful that like people care and people, you know, friends of friends were messaging me and saying, Hey, like, I'm just, I know you're busy. I'm just thinking about you. You reached out to me, you know, and like all these people just felt this like common morning. And I'm just thankful that people care. And like, I will never forget that in this last week. Girl, I love you. <laughs> I love you guys. Thank you so much. We're all getting a little emotional over here, I think. <laughs> Can we hug after this? Yeah. Group hug. Let's give a collective thank you to Sinzella and make sure you all go follow Sinzella on Instagram at S-E-N-Z-E-L-A-A-T-M-A-R and Relief Without Borders. That's all spelled out. You can find both pages on Instagram. You can find further direction there or on the Relief Without Borders website. That's reliefworders.org to find out ways you can help support refugees from Afghanistan. Even like Sinzella said, just share the episode or repost on social media. The smallest actions truly have such a huge impact. Don't forget to send your NDE moments or WOMED shoutouts to us on Instagram at the WOMED. And if you have some time, please leave Jackie and I a review on whatever platform that you like to listen to your podcasts. 
and hit that subscribe button for us. That's all we got this week. Till next time, WOMED out.